You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Colossians chapter 1, as we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. Up to this point in our series, we have defined supremacy is that person or that thing who in your heart or your mind surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority. It's that person or that thing that you give permission to, to have control of the entirety of your life, your thoughts, your feelings, the choices that you make in life. Today, in our text, Paul is going to confront our lines in the sand. Remember many years ago, actually not too many years ago, I was having a conversation with a man who had been with us pretty much since we, the beginning of our church, who had developed um, an addiction to pot. It had begun as medicinal, regardless of how we might feel about that issue, uh, his dependency had grown so severe that it was affecting himself, his family, and in fact, his relationship with the law. So I confronted him on it in love and said, brother, I'm concerned for you that this thing has totally taken over your life. I'll spare you the details of the conversation, but it ended like this. Don't you dare question my love for Jesus Christ, but I will never give up my pot. Let's think about that for a second. I love Jesus Christ, but I will never give up my blank. You see, I think the reality is the majority of us today, a lot of us, have lines in the sand. There are lines in the sand where God's authority, his supremacy, the permission that we give him to govern our lives, that authority ends and our non-negotiables begin. I think for more of us than might realize, we have lines in the sand, places where we just will not allow God to go, places where we will not give him total authority and supremacy over our lives. I would imagine that for the majority of us this morning, your issue is probably not pot. In fact, I just, I hope so. But it might be something different. And I think we all have those lines. And what I want to do today is to look into the text in this section. Paul has prayed for the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. He has argued for the supremacy of Jesus Christ, for Jesus to be first in the hearts and lives of the Colossae people and in our lives, but now he is going to give an autobiographical sketch of what a life looks like when it is governed by the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But I want to take a slightly different approach to our outline this morning, and I just want to ask this question, what does life look like when Jesus doesn't reign supreme? Because the reality is that for many of us, there are areas where we give Jesus ultimate control, but there are many areas where we don't. 
And what does life look like when we resist giving Jesus Christ total control? Find that in verses 24 through 27. We're going to cover only these this morning. And Paul writes this, now I rejoice in my, what's that? Right, right there, I mean, you, you already see the line in the sand that many of us will draw, right? I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, the church, in my flesh, and I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Of which I became a minister, that is a servant, a bond servant, a slave, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, assigned to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, that is something that was hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that there are weighty topics in the text. Father, we are not, I am not, I think many of us are not here this morning to hear gentle, pious platitudes about how life is always going to get better when we follow Jesus. We want the truth. We want reality to strike us, to wake us up out of our lethargy and out of our apathy to radical and utter and total dependence upon our Savior Jesus, the suffering King, who one day will return to end all suffering. But until that day in heaven suffers with us as we suffer for him. So Father, we pray, God, that his glory and his presence would descend upon our time, that would wake us out of our slumber The joy of living for his glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to take the, how, do we have point number one up there? What does it look like? Did I get, there, there. <coughs> Two points this morning, very simple. Number one, when Jesus isn't totally supreme over my life, number one, I just, I won't rejoice in suffering. Um, I think the reality is we suffer for a variety of different reasons in life, do we not? And we find that in verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, we suffer for a lot of different reasons. I mean, the reality is that many of us suffer through self-inflicted wounds. We uh, smack our thumb with a hammer, we're going to suffer. If we walk out into the middle of traffic without looking, we're going to suffer. If you don't uh, spend your entire life flossing your teeth, you're going to suffer. At some level, we all suffer from self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Anybody else out there? But we also suffer because we live in a broken world. But the reality is when we watch the news and we see the way our world is, we realize that we suffer because our world does not function the way God intended it to. We suffer. We suffer not only because we live in a broken world, but also because we live in broken bodies. As I was talking to my father this last week um, who came through his back surgery, a lot of you have been asking, how is he doing? And 
I don't know how else to respond other than not good. He's in agonizing, miserable pain. For my father to shed a tear because of physical pain never happens. And to see my father weeping in his hospital bed because of the pain of his surgery. It's hard. Suffering at any level is painful. But in this context here, Paul is not minimizing the suffering or the pain that we experience in life from a variety of different places, but he is linking it directly to his ministry for the Lord. If you look back in verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my suffering, which is for your sake, that is for the sake of the church. Paul in this text is suffering as a direct result for his witness for Jesus Christ. In this letter, we find that Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell the letters of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, commonly known as the prison letters. He is writing shackled, not because he was a violent criminal, but because he was a peace-seeking, reconciliation-loving, gospel-preaching minister of Jesus Christ. And he finds himself in a prison cell. And in verse 24, he says, I rejoice. <laughs> I celebrate. I'm excited that I am where I am. I'm excited that I'm, I'm chained to this prison guard. I'm excited that I'm, I'm barely getting fed every day. I'm excited that I'm behind prison bars where I can barely see people. And I got all these other 10 really rough guys with me. I'm excited. I'm rejoicing. I'm celebrating that I get to suffer for Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I suffer, regardless of the reason, that's not how I respond. Can I get an amen? (laughs) When I suffer, uh, commonly my response, regardless of the reasons of my suffering, is what did I do wrong? Right? Um, God, why are you punishing me? God, are you angry with me? What, What happened? And sometimes in my life, I will suffer because of my sin. The reality is that God will apply disciplinary pressure onto the life of his children when they err and go the wrong direction. That is God's love, not God's anger, not God's hatred. That is his love, amen? There are times where I inflict pain upon myself because my God loves me. But in the seasons where I feel like I'm trying to serve the Lord, I'm trying to honor God, and I'm trying to please him in all the little things that I do, and life gets really difficult and painful. As I was having conversations with my wife this morning, I'm just, honey, I'm so overwhelmed by life right now. I don't know how I can possibly continue on. If you want to know where I'm at. So I'm feeling the text right now. If you are too, I'm right next to you. But the truth of the matter is that all of us tend to seem to fall for the lie that suffering's only for the bad people. And that all the good people, all of God's people, just get easy street. But that's the lie of the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus and everything's going to be easy. Because the truth of the matter is, from Matthew to the book of Revelation, tens and tens and tens of times, the authors of the New Testament tell us that the lot of God's people until they meet Jesus is a lot of affliction and suffering. I want to read some verses for you, follow along as I summarize some of what God's word says about suffering. 
John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says this, uh, because I suffered, you will suffer. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul writes, as children and heirs, we will inherit all the blessings that Jesus Christ stands, uh, stands to give us, which includes suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, Paul tells us that our suffering actually helps light the path to salvation for other people. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul tells us that our suffering honors God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul tells us that we must not be ashamed of our suffering for Christ. (laughs) And I'm so guilty of that. I was at the gym the other day wearing a shirt that said Harvest Bible Chapel on the back, concerned about what people would think if they saw my church name. Shame on you. I'm right next to you today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 says, we are all called to endure suffering. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, suffering purifies, refines, and beautifies our faith. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that we must remain faithful in our suffering even to the point of death because when it's over, we will receive the crown of life. So to the answer to the question, how is it possible that Paul can rejoice in the context of his suffering? How is it that he can celebrate and be grateful that he's stuck in a prison cell when he'd probably rather be out planting his 17th church? Here's what he says in the text. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And here's why. Because in my flesh, verse 24, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over this section of scripture. What on earth is Paul talking about when he says he's filling up what is lacking, okay, in terms of Christ's affliction? Well, here's what he doesn't mean. If I just boil it all down, because a lot of ink has been spilled on this. Paul is not saying, look at your neighbor and say, he's not saying this. You got you to do it before I keep going because we've got to get this, right? Crowd participation. He's not saying, Cheryl, right? He's not saying, Carla, right? Okay. He is not saying that he is completing or filling up Christ's atoning work for the forgiveness of our sins. He is not saying that, well, what Jesus did on the cross was pretty great, But there's a level of suffering that I've got to go through to ensure that you get to heaven. He's saying this. He's not saying what Jesus did was pretty good, but you've got to work at it. You got to get to church. You got to pay your tithe. You got to be really good. You got to make sure you recycle and you got to take really good care of your dog and send some money into that television preacher uh, that you just saw the other day. Like, he's not saying any of that. He's not saying you got to be perfect. What he's saying is this. What he's not saying is Jesus didn't get it all. He completed it all. His death on the cross and his atoning work for your forgiveness of your sins was complete. Amen? What is he saying then? He's not saying that Christ's atonement is lacking. He's saying that the presentation of Christ's atonement to a lost and dying world is incomplete, is lacking. This is how John Piper put this. There are millions of people in the world for for whom Christ has died and do not know it. 
millions. They're in your coffee shops. They're in your daycares. They're in the gyms that you go to. They're in the schools that your children attend. They're at work and at your campus where you go to school. They're on your kid's baseball team, and they're even in your family. There are people in this world for whom Christ has died who have never heard of the toning work of Jesus Christ for their sins on the cross, who have never tasted the goodness of Jesus' sacrifice and affliction for them on the cross, who have never sang out from the, from the depths of their soul how deep the Father's love for us, vast beyond a measure. He would give his only son and make a wretch his treasure. There are so many people in this world who have never heard, have never tasted, have never seen the goodness of Jesus' afflictions on the cross for them. So the question becomes, how does God make Christ's suffering on the cross visible to a blind and unseen world? How does he do it? He makes it visible through the body of Christ. He makes it visible through your suffering and mine. When we are willing to suffer for our king, to endure reproach, when we are willing to endure humiliation, when we are willing to accept rejection and ridicule in this life and loss And dare I say in the church of America, simple, mere inconvenience for the good news of Jesus Christ. The reality is many of us are never going to go to a prison cell for speaking the name of Jesus, but many of us will experience ostracism from the people that we value. Are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to be inconvenienced to advance the good news of Jesus in a lost and dying word where our suffering, our willingness to endure inconvenience for Jesus Christ actually makes his suffering better known. And I say sadly this, I think suffering for Jesus for many of us is the line in the sand. Suffering for Jesus in the American church is something that we have rarely been challenged to do. We've been offered the benefits and told there's never a price. We've been offered the gift, but never been challenged to live for the giver. We've been offered the glory, but we've been told there will never be any pain. And it's all a lie. The reality is that Paul tells us the Christian life will be one of affliction and suffering when we stand for the name of Jesus Christ. And for too many people, that is the line in the sand. But suffering is the way. Maybe it's a prison cell, maybe. Maybe in 10 years when the American government starts taking away tax exemption for churches, there will be some kind of imprisonment as they start monitoring what we preach in the pulpit. Maybe there will be a prison cell for me in the future. If you don't think we're heading that direction, you're probably not paying attention to the news. The free speech right now is on the bubble. And so there are a couple of generations away, maybe when I'm 60 and I start preaching, I call something specific a sin. 
our government could throw me in jail. And maybe we'll never get there. But right now, even when I go to the gym, I struggle just to wear a shirt that says, I love Jesus, without feeling that weird level of who's looking. Are you with me? And that's why we have to understand that this little line in the sand that we have drawn in our hearts and in our lives has to be erased for the glory of God, for the advance of Jesus, so that other people who do not know him and are heading to hell for eternity can hear the name through you and through our suffering. That's what we got to have. The story is told of a Maasai warrior from the lands of Africa. He was traveling along one day on a road and he encountered an evangelist. This is a true story. He was immediately converted, told about the good news of Jesus, Jesus' suffering, his bleeding, his dying on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave. This Maasai warrior immediately gives his life to Jesus. As he's walking on the way back to his tribe, he realizes, I have to tell everybody in my village about, I have to tell my people about the Savior who suffered and bled and died so that we could be forgiven of all the horrific sins we committed. So he went back to his, he went back to his tribe and he started door, knocking on the door and getting everybody that he could and telling them about Jesus and the Savior that had come out of heaven to die and to suffer on the cross for their sins and, to, and who rose from the grave. And in, instead of accepting and embracing his message, he was shocked to find that the men and the women of the tribe were so upset with him that the men tackled him and the women started beating him with barbed wire. Thinking he was dead, they dragged him out of the village. He snaps back to, he recovers, he goes to a river and gets water for himself, he nurses himself back to health, and he thinks to himself, maybe I said something wrong. Did I leave something out about Jesus? Did I not tell them that he loves them? So he gathered himself up, he went right back into the village, he went into the middle of all those huts, and he once again began to proclaim, Jesus who is a holy God, came on a rescue mission to die for your sins and to suffer for you on the cross and to forgive you. And once again, the men of the tribe and the women came and they tackled him and whipped him until he was unconscious. They drugged him thinking he was dead. To survive once was incredible. To survive twice was a miracle. But when he came to, he knew, I can't give up now. I've got to go back. And as he went back to his tribe, before he could open his mouth, the men tackled him again, and the women started beating him. But as he spoke the name of Jesus, before he passed out, the last thing that he saw with his eyes were the women beginning to weep. When he passed out, he woke up in his own bed. The very group of people that were trying to kill him were now trying to save him. Several months later, that entire tribe came to Christ. Why? Because this man was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. How many things in life, how many messages in life, people want to see that we're willing to bleed for this thing. People want to see that we're willing to be inconvenienced for this message. 
If it's merely just something that you can buy at a store and put on, on, on your bumper or on the windowsill at your home and it's nothing more than that to you and you're not willing to suffer for it, you're not willing to be inconvenienced for it, you're not willing to, be, um, to struggle for the sake of this thing, people are going to look at you like, well, you really don't believe this, do you? People in our world want to see that we're willing to bleed for what we believe. And that's why I'm challenging us today. We've got to erase this line in the sand, amen? The paradox of it all is it doesn't seem to make sense is that when we suffer for Christ, it actually illuminates Christ's suffering. And so we have to be willing to say, here I am, Lord. Erase the line in my life. I'm willing to suffer for you. I'm willing to go. But it gets even better. If we won't rejoice in our suffering, we also won't steward the mystery of the gospel verses 25 through 27. When Jesus Christ doesn't reign supreme in our hearts, when he is not the ultimate treasure of our lives, why would we sacrifice? Why would we suffer? But if he is our greatest treasure, if he is our most prized possession in this world, what wouldn't we give up for him? It says here in this text, if he's not supreme, we won't steward the mystery. Verse 25 says this of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Christ doesn't reign supreme, we're going to find it very hard to steward the mystery. Well, what is stewardship? Well, how many of us have ever had to babysit or hire a babysitter? If you've ever babysat, you totally understand what stewardship is all about because someone is entrusting their most prized possession to your care. It's not yours, but you better make sure you take really good care of it. Am I preaching? I remember when I was a little kid, I lived in Frankfurt, Germany. Lived there for three years, and I had two babysitters, two babysitters in Frankfurt, Germany. The first was a girl, and she was stern. I think she was 100% German. I don't know. I'm looking at you, Gabby. And she was just like, love you. <laughs> she was like, you, you toe the line with this girl. Like, if you step over the line, like, I'm the sanguine, right? You draw a line, I'm going to step over it just because that's what sanguines do, right? Amen? You got any sanguine kids people out here like we just like stepping over lines that's what we like to do and so she would draw a line I would step over it and she would say put your nose in the corner she was not messing around and it wasn't one of those like I gotta put my forehead in the corner it was I gotta squeeze my nose into the corner like and she would keep me there for 10-15 minutes at a time because she's like I am not messing around you are under my care and I'm gonna take this seriously I complained to my parents. I'm like, oh, I can't stand this girl. She's terrible. She's awful. She's miserable. She's no fun. I grumbled and complained about it. So finally, they go out and they get a new babysitter. They get this guy. This guy's like really cool. He's really chill. Probably had a German accent, but I can't do cool and chill with a German accent. So God, be forgive me. But he was like, hey, man, we're going to hang out. We're going to have fun, man. I'm just going to chill with you, man. Come on. Let's have a good time. Translate that into a German accent. And what happens with him, he lets me step over every line I want. He lets me do whatever I want. He lets me go wherever I want until finally at the end of the day, I ran across a major street to go to another 
uh, playground across the street, and he didn't even know I was going. Who is the better steward? The first or the second? The first, why? Because the first took seriously her responsibility to care for what did not belong to her. As we look back at the text, Paul is a steward. He has been entrusted. He has been given an assignment by God for which he will be held accountable. And that stewardship, that assignment was to a people. Look back at verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make known the word of fully, to make the, I can't talk, the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known this mystery, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul had been entrusted with a group of people to make fully known the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This people were what were called the Gentiles. Gentiles was anybody who wasn't Jewish. Capiche? All right. Now here's the thing. Paul's not Jew, or Paul's not a Gentile. He's Jewish. He's a very smart. Uh, he was a Pharisee at one point. He understood the Torah and the law incredibly well. He understood the Jewish mind, but he did not understand the Gentile mind very well. And yet, who did God call him to, Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. So what does Paul, a Jewish man who understands Jewish culture and Jewish history incredibly well, what does this man do to reach and to steward his ministry to the Gentiles? Here's some of the things that he did that we find in the book of Acts. He moved in. Paul 14 times, we find, moved his life to plant a new church in Gentile populated areas. He became a tent maker. He worked next to the people. He got to know them. He spent time with them. He got to know their names. He gained their respect by working harder than everybody else. He moved in. And then secondly, he learned their culture. He learned how they think, what they love, who they worship. And then he contextualized the gospel. That is that, if you notice throughout the book of Acts, have you ever noticed that Paul never seems to share the gospel the same way twice? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever wondered why that is? It, he's always sharing it. It's the same gospel, amen? Gospel never changes, but he shares it in a different way. For instance, when he's with Jewish people, where does he start? He starts with the Old Testament because he knows the Jews know the Old Testament. All he's got to do is connect the Messiah to the Old Testament. All the Old Testament promises point to Jesus. And they're just like, see, it's Jesus. He's the one that's been promised for thousands of years. And they're like, huzzah! Praise God, we get it! And they're saved. But with a Greek or a Gentile or a Roman, you can't do that because they have no concept of the Old Testament, right? So where do you start? when Paul is at Athens and he goes up to Mars Hill and he sees all the idols that have been spread out that the people would go up to worship, he sees this one idol. It's called the idol to the unknown God. And he walks up there and he doesn't begin with the Old Testament. He begins, I, I see that you are a, a wise and worshipful people 
who worship a lot of different gods, and you have this one altar for this unknown God, I want to tell you who he is and what he's done for you. You see the difference? He's contextualizing the gospel, figuring out a way to explain it for the people that he is with, whether Gentile, whether Jew, whatever it is. And here's the deal. Every generation has to figure out how to share the unchanging mystery of the gospel that Christ came and died for sinners, whether Jew or Gentile, black or white, rich or poor, Democrat or Republican. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And every generation is responsible to figure out how do I communicate this truth that never changes to a constantly changing culture. Is that hard? Because the reality is, 20 years ago, the questions and the narratives and the challenges that we faced as a, as a church to share the good news of Jesus with our culture were completely different. 20 years ago, the big deal was... Um, Evangelism explosion. Remember evangelism explosion? You remember the four laws? Just like share the four laws with people and people will get the gospel and they'll understand. They'll come to faith right there on the spot. It was a piece of cake. Street witnessing was a big thing. Just go out and start sharing. But does that stuff work now? Not really. Some people you'll find it will work with. So we have to figure out how to contextualize the gospel. So what do we do? What do we do? We've got to move in, get to know our culture, learn how to share the gospel, and contextualize it for the people that are around us. But here's the line in the sand. How many of us are willing to go to the work to do it? How many of us are willing to go to the effort to get to know people, to rub shoulders and build relationships with people that don't look like us, don't think like us? How many of us are really willing to educate ourselves to figure out how people actually think? Do you see the invisible line in the sand that I think so many of us struggle with I want to be able to talk about Jesus. I want to be able to share Jesus. But frankly, I just don't want to go to all the work necessary. God, why can't you just make the gospel easy? Amen? Am I preaching to myself here? We don't want the effort to learn. We don't want to stand out and be different. We don't want to experience the ridicule and rejection that comes with speaking the name of Jesus. And can I shoot straight? I think sometimes we'd rather rant at people than be patient with them. So how do we erase this line? Can I spend some time on this one? Can we spend some time? I got about five minutes left, okay? Can you track with me? What do we do to erase this line? Because I want us to think about this just for a second. God's doing a thing in our church. I just spent 25 minutes with 40 plus people in our pre-service prayer. Can I tell you, hold on, hold on just a second because I'm going to give you a spot. Up to this point, we have historically had on average three to six people in pre-service prayer every week. 
And now we got 40. Now, God, what does that mean? God is stirring in our church a passion, a fresh passion to pray, which means when God's people pray and they humble themselves and they get on their faces and they tell God, we need you, we need more of you, we need you to show up. It's not dependent on how awesome this is or how awesome this is or how awesome this is, but how awesome you are, God. And when you show up and your glory descends and you come into the room, man, people get changed. So when that happens, God... Okay, so I'm going to give you a second here, okay? When we pray and God shows up and God moves and God stirs, okay, something begins to happen in the people and God's people get on fire. But for what? For what? Do we want to grow as a church so we can get into a church building, so we can have a base of operations so that here in Upper Marion and King of Prussia, we can advance the gospel more effectively? Do we want that? Okay, but do we want it with just more fish jumping out of this fishbowl into our fishbowl from another church? Is that what we want? I mean, if you're here from another church, I praise God that you're here. I'm not trying to shoo you away. Stay. I'm glad you're here. Praise God. I don't want that to get confused. But at the same time, do we really want to grow with just fish jumping out of one bowl into another? Or do we want to see people in this community, in these houses that surround us at work and at the gym and at the playground, at the baseball field, do we want to see these people who watch us suffer for our king look at us and say, why on earth are you willing to suffer for the name of Jesus so that I can tell you how good he is and that he'll forgive you of your sins? And they come to Christ and they get saved and they start coming to this church and they start changing and their marriages get mended and their kids get saved and their households get saved and their families get saved. Is that what we're after. That's what we're after. And I'm excited that we're praying because that's where it all begins. That's where the hot embers start to get together and the fire starts to burn afresh. And people who are cold and out there stuck in the cold, dying and lost and looking for heat and looking for light, they're attracted to fire. So when we go back out into our community, right, over the week, what do we do? Because this, this is awesome. Like I'm telling you, this builds my faith when I come here. But what do we do when we go back out there? A couple of things. Number one, if we're going to erase this line of stewarding the mystery, number one, we have to accept the assignment. We have to accept the assignment where Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you to advance the message of my grace into the lives of other people. And that so send I you wasn't just for 12 apostles 2,000 years ago. And it's not just for the pastors. It's for you and it's for me and the spheres of influence that we have. You have to accept that assignment. Second Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 19, says Paul tells us that Christ has given us the church, the ministry of reconciliation to take out into our spheres of influence to tell people that Jesus died for them and loves them and he's coming again. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to do this right now. We have to, in our will, tell God, God, I accept, I embrace the assignment that you have given me. You have surrounded me with a people, whether in my baseball team or my work or my school or my coffee shop or at the gym. I accept the assignment. I am your ambassador. I ask you to do that right now. Right now. We're not going to go any further until we just take a moment and you say, yes or no, God, I'm going to do it or I'm not. Because you got to make a choice. 
You're either Christ's ambassador or you're not. Am I preaching? So make the choice now and tell the Lord right now. God, I am willing. Number two, you've got to move in. I don't just mean move into your house. I mean move into people's lives. You've got to be willing to build relationships with people who may make you feel uncomfortable. You've got to build relationships with people in the coffee shops and the daycare and the gyms and the schools and the work and the campuses and the ball teams. You've got to earn their respect, affirm what you can, and pick your battles very carefully. Church, we're in this for the sake of people's souls. I don't give a flip who wins the election. I'm not putting up a presidential sign in my front lawn because I got one guy on one side of me who's going to vote one way and I got this other guy who's going to vote another way. And I'm trying to win them both to Jesus. So my political persuasion at the end of the day is going to alienate somebody. I'm not willing to do that. Am I going to vote? You better believe it. Do I care deeply? You better believe it. But am I willing to cost the gospel for that? No. That's why I don't get onto Facebook. I don't rant and I don't rage against the culture because I love our culture. I love the people in our culture and I want to be winsome, not repulsive. We've got to move in. We've got to build relationships. We've got to get to know our neighbors. We've got to get to know people in our spheres of influence. We've got to learn how to reach them. The reality is that all of the mechanisms that we used to use, evangelism, explosion, the four, the four laws, those things don't work anymore. So we have to learn how to share the good news of Jesus in this context. Can I give you some resources? Get out a pen. If you're going to be his ambassador, you've got to educate yourself. You've got to educate yourself. You've got to learn how people think, what they love, who they worship. So here are some th- people that you can listen to that will help you with this. Listen to Ravi Zacharias on his podcast. Ravi Zacharias is an amazing... You know what I love about Ravi? I'm going to go a little bit long today. You got anywhere to go? Okay, good. All right. So listen to Ravi, and here's why. Because he is an amazing storyteller. And he knows how to crystallize how people think with an amazing, compelling story. He's an amazing apologist. Here are some other apologists that I'd love to listen to. Norman Geisler, William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel, John Lennox. These are men who understand the culture, how the culture thinks, what it worships, what it loves, and knows how to teach us how to communicate to it. Here's another one, Doug Wilson. If you get on YouTube and you watch the debates between Doug Wilson, you remember Christopher Hitchens? Uh, the avowed atheist, uh, acidic atheist who passed away uh, not too long ago. His brother's an avowed Christian. But Chris Hitchens, to the day he died, was an avowed atheist. But he would get together with this humble pastor of a tiny little church in the Midwest called Doug Wilson. And they went out on this tour and they would do these debates at universities and college campuses, and they would go back and forth and they would debate the validity of the scriptures and and the existence of God and why Christianity is reasonable. But in it all, it wasn't just that Doug knew how to win the argument. It's that Christopher Hitchens, an angry, acidic atheist committed to his cause, began to love Doug Wilson because Doug Wilson loved him. 
That's what we need. Not just good arguments. We need to know how to love our culture. Here's some other things. You need to understand postmodernism. You need to understand the world and the mindset that you live in. Postmodernism, it's kind of like a way of thinking. It's the soup that we live in. And when you understand that the fundamental element of postmodernism is that there, the only absolute is that there is no, when you understand that, and you understand that when you make an absolute claim that Jesus Christ alone saves and he is the only way to heaven, you will understand why people get scared of you. Because they interpret that as a power play. That's postmodernism. And so if you know that, you will learn to be able to share your faith where you are making absolute claims without sounding like a tyrant. Am I tracking? Because there are people out there who are sharing the truth on street corners and they sound tyrannical. And the culture doesn't respond. But there are people who are out there sharing the absolute truths of Jesus Christ and they're doing it in winsome and gentle ways and they're winning scores of people to Christ. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Read books like Tim Keller. I talk about Tim Keller all the time because he's kind of my missionary hero. He lives in New York City. He planted a church, a Redeemer Presbyterian. He's got thousands of people from New York City coming to his church and getting radically saved. So he's got great books, The Reason for God, Making Sense of God, Center Church, which is what I'm going through. You've got to learn. You've got to learn. I'm going to leave you with this. Sometimes it's not that complicated. Sometimes it's just posting up somewhere and a place and adopting a people and praying for them and building a relationship and waiting for the door to open. I'll leave you with this. Um, I have three places in King of Prussia that I've kind of adopted as my areas, my assignments, so to speak. This is my primary assignment right here. She's pretty. It's a good assignment. I got four more assignments back home. But beyond that, what are my assignments? You, and I love you. You're pretty too. (laughs) But I have a few more. The gym, my school, and my coffee shop. In my gym, I met a guy, we'll call him Joe. And Joe started uh, attending, he wanted to lose some weight, so he started coming to the gym, we got to know each other a little bit. He had moved out of the city into King of Prussia, he works for Giant nationally, so he travels a lot. But his wife and him, who have two children, moved to King of Prussia specifically for the school system. But as he had moved out of the city, where all of his friends lived, And where he had grown up, he moved out into the suburbs and he said, you know, I used to go to the bars, I had all these friends, I had all these acquaintances, we love spending time together, and now I come out here and nobody goes to the bar in King of Prussia. It's so lame. And I'm like, tell me about it. (laughs) I don't know what to say. I'm like, you know, what do you say in that moment? And and here's the thing, this guy was in the gym. it was one of those weird things because I would see, Bevan, you, you know how this goes. You, you build a relationship and they see you and they want to talk, right? And you just want to get your workout done and get home to your family, but they want to talk, right? And so I would see Joe and every once in a while I would see Joe and I'd be like, 
okay, this is going to be a conversation. It'd be 20, 30 minutes of just him talking. And I remember there was a season where it's like, I don't want to see Joe. I'm so tired of seeing Joe. You just met Joe last week at the voting booth. (laughs) And he talked, didn't he? (laughs) But you know what dawned on me one day? This is a man who's lonely in desperate need for relationship, who feels isolated in King of Russia. It just wants a friend. Said, okay. There's going to be a couple of days where I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to see Joe. And I'm not going to talk for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And I'm just going to love him. I'm going to let him talk. I'm going to let him share. And I'm going to build a relationship with this guy for the sake of the gospel. And I'm going to suffer the inconvenience of not being able to do my workout if it would win his soul to the kingdom. Now, is he saved yet? No, but I'm working on it. I'm also working on Bob. I'm also working on Randy. And I'm also working on Billy. And these are all people in our community that I have met outside of these walls because I've posted up in places, I've adopted people, and I've said, God, I'm moving in. I'm going to learn my culture. And I'm going to figure out how to share the gospel with these people. And you need to do the same. Will you? Because if we want to be a church that God's going to use here in King of Prussia, we can't just constantly having fish jump into our pool. If you're here, I'm so excited. Praise God. But we need to be sharing the gospel. And we do that through suffering. And we do that through stewarding the mystery. So church, let's go. Father, we love you, and we surrender. God, we want to suffer well for you, sometimes just suffer the inconveniences, and Father, we also want to steward well. And so, Father, we pray, God, that you would help us to do just that. Father, I pray for these men in my life that you have given Joe, Bob, Randy, Billy. Father, I thank you for these men that you've placed in my life whose respect I've earned, whose ear I have earned, relationships have been built. And now, Father, I pray, God, continue those to the point of their salvation. And Father, even if it takes my death for them to enter eternity, Father, I pray, God, use my death for that purpose. God, I partially don't know what I'm asking right now. And I know, God, that you're going to do something crazy through that. But Lord, I want these men to be saved. But I know, Father, even more, you want them to be saved. So I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.